2 Corinthians chapter 3. Let me read this chapter to you. I hope that you'll follow closely along with the words of God. They're not my words. They're His words to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or need we, as some others, epistles of commendation to you? Or letters of commendation from you? Ye are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read of all men. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth. For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. But their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. May the Lord bless, and He will, the reading of His Word. He said that His Word would not go forth in vain, but that it would accomplish the purpose to which He sends it. Last Sunday morning, 2 Corinthians 7 and 1, I preached to you, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 
I hope you'll not forget that text. I hope you'll not forget the promises. I hope you'll not forget the threat of the fear of the Lord. I hope that you'll cleanse yourself from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness, and realize those blessings of having God dwell with us and with you and walk with us and with you and for him to be a father unto you and for you to be his sons and his daughters. What a blessing from 2 Corinthians 7.1. If we cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, we will conform to the image of Jesus Christ. If we allow the flesh to remain, we do not look like Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ had no taint of sin in his being. Everything he thought, everything he said, and everything he did was perfectly holy and righteous and godly and pleasing to his Father. And if we will cleanse ourselves, as I taught last Lord's Day, we will conform to be more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Every man on the outside in what he says and what he does is reflecting the nature that he has inside. We have human natures, so we act like human beings. We act like men. We have different kinds of natures, different temperamental dispositions as part of that nature, and so we respond to things a little differently. Some of us are closer, or some of you may be closer, to God by His Spirit than others, and so you look more like Jesus Christ. But we all have within us all those of us that are truly born again, that are truly God's children, the nature of God. We have a new man within us that is created in righteousness and true holiness. And the more of the little pieces that we get rid of, of the flesh and spirit, the more we will think, speak, and act like the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what I want to teach you today from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Let me take a short trip through this third chapter, then show you the lesson that I want from it. Let's first of all look at the first three verses. The first three verses, the Apostle Paul is defending himself against any complaints that he might be trying to exalt himself or to commend himself or to praise himself. Because in the last four verses, or five verses, of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he has spoken of the fact that he is always triumphing when he preaches the gospel. When I preach the gospel, I always win. I always triumph because God is with me. And if you don't like what I preach and you hate it, then it's simply showing a savour before God of death unto death. If you love what I preach and you hear it and you believe it and want to obey it, then you're showing a savour and making a savour of life unto life. Now that's a successful ministry. And then he says in verse 17, For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God speak we in Christ. Paul concludes 2 Corinthians 2 by saying, We don't modify the word of God. I preach it just the way God gave it to me. I'm not like most preachers. We are not as many which corrupt the word of God. He's saying most preachers corrupt the Word of God. They do not present the Word of God as God intended it 
in sincerity and in truth, but I do. And so in case anyone was thinking that Paul was trying to praise himself, he takes up in these first three verses to point out that I'm not trying to commend myself. I'm not like the preachers you have at Corinth. I don't need letters of commendation from other churches to you Corinthians. I don't need to bring a little file folder of letters from other churches saying that, yes, indeed, Paul's quite a preacher, and yes, it appears that he's an apostle. I don't need that. And I don't need letters of commendation from you to anyone else. You are my epistle. He tells the Corinthians, you are my epistle. And what do we mean by epistle? We mean a document that certifies the official nature of Paul's ministry. What proved Paul to be an apostle of Jesus Christ? What showed Paul to be a man of God and a true servant of Jesus Christ? It was the Corinthian conversions. By the fact that they lived a godly life in the middle of the dissolute city of Corinth was proof of his ministry. He says, Ye are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read of all men. Everyone can see that knows about the Corinthian church that I must be a messenger of God because look at the change it's made in your lives. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, I don't need a letter from you. You are my letter. It's obvious that Jesus Christ has used my ministry in changing your lives. And that was done not with ink. I'm not talking about a piece of paper with ink on it, Paul says, because it's the Spirit of the living God that did it by writing in your hearts. But He ministered to you. He helped you along in your conversion by me. It's the Holy Spirit of God that writes in our hearts, as our brother prayed this morning. That's regeneration. God writes His Word and His law in our hearts, but it's the ministry that brings it out in conversion. And so Paul is saying here, I'm not trying to commend myself. I don't need to be commended by letters to you or letters from you. You are my epistle. Look at what's happened in Corinth. Obviously, God is with me by the change in your lives. Right. And, he, and he goes on to say that in such, verse 4, in the next three verses, he defends his ministry further and, and points out that his ministry is totally dependent upon God. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward. We rest in the fact that God is working with us. We look at the results and we know that God is with us. Because here we are preaching the message of Jesus Christ to the Greeks' foolishness and to the Jews' a stumbling block, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. He sees that taking place in his ministry. He says in verse 5, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves. By ourselves we're nothing. But our sufficiency is of God. God has blessed us to preach His Word plainly, and He's written in your hearts by His Spirit so that there's a result. And there's conversions. And men turn from idols to worship and serve the living God. That's the proof of my ministry. I don't need letters. And He says in verse 6 that this God and Savior Jesus Christ has also made us able ministers of the New Testament. 
not that they had great ability themselves, but that they were shown the truth enough that they were able to preach it clearly for God's people to hear it and react to it of the New Testament. Because at Corinth, there were some who were wanting to teach the Old Testament. It was so hard for the Jews to leave that Old Testament. And Paul's saying, I'm not stuck in that Old Testament. God's made me an able minister of the New Testament. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. Moses came down with a letter, written from God with Ten Commandments. Did those Ten Commandments give life? No. They were a sentence of death. You want to hang with... You want to hang with the law of Moses and just have Ten Commandments that leave you dead and condemned? I preach a different message. I preach a message of Jesus Christ accompanied by His Spirit and full of spiritual power that is able to change your hearts and bring forth the glory of God, not in the obscure darkness of condemnation, but one of life. The Spirit giveth life. It's a spiritual message that Paul had from the New Testament. Now now he's going to compare the Old Testament with the New for a few verses. He's just introduced it. The letter of the Old Testament is nothing but death. When you go read the Old Testament, it gives you Ten Commandments, and if you can't keep them, then you're doomed to die. But I have a very different message, he said. I have the New Testament, that Jesus Christ kept the law perfectly and died for us that we might live. Now he's going to make some comparisons. Look at what he says in verse 7. Verses 7 through 11 are section 3 of this chapter. Was the Old Testament glorious? It was glorious. Did fire come down on Mount Sinai? Did Mount Sinai shake like it was in the middle of a horrible earthquake? Yes. When Moses went up and got the word of God, the commandments of God, when he came back down, what had happened to him? His face was shining so bright that they didn't want Moses to speak to them unless he would put a veil over his face. And so while he was speaking to the people, Moses was always wearing a veil. When he would go in to meet with God, he'd take the veil off because he wanted to meet God face to face. But when he'd come back and meet with the people, over down came the veil. Because you get near Mount Sinai and touch it. If a beast got through the boundary and touched Mount Sinai, what did you have to do to the beast? Kill it. It was a glorious, glorious distribution of God's law to the people of Israel. However, notice what he says. If the ministration of death, anyone still holding on to the Old Testament is nothing but a minister of death. If the ministration of death, which is all that Moses could offer, written and engraven in stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? If it was glorious to preach Moses and to bring the commandments of Moses to the people of Israel, how much more glorious is it to bring a completed sacrifice in Jesus Christ to the people? He's made me an able minister of the New Testament. You may have some teachers there at Corinth that have letters from other churches saying that they're great preachers who are trying to teach you the law. But I 
have the message of Jesus Christ, and you are my epistle. He says in verse 9, If the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. If you have a message and a system of religion that is only death and condemnation, how much more glorious is a ministration or a ministry or a religion of righteousness? It is far superior. Instead of being condemned, you're shown the righteousness of Jesus Christ upon all those that believe. What a difference. What greater glory the New Testament has than the Old. I love verse 10. For even that which was made glorious, that's the Old Testament, it was made glorious. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect, by reason of the glory that excelleth. You know what that verse is saying? In comparison, the Old Testament really didn't have any glory at all in comparison to the glory of the New Testament. Verse 11, For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Here's another factor. The Old Testament was just a temporary way of worshiping God, only a couple thousand years. The way that we're worshiping God now through Jesus Christ with the full unveiling of salvation by Him is the way we're going to worship God forever. Amen. It lasts forever. Now, what kind, of a, what kind of preachers does that make? So we have the preachers described in verses 12 through 16 and their ministry. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. Because we have something so much more glorious than the Old Testament because we have righteousness to teach, because we have life to teach, because we have what's going to last forever to teach, we use great plainness of speech. There's no veils in our ministry. We are nothing like Moses, verse 13, which had to put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not carefully or steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. The end here is not that the Israelites couldn't see when the Old Testament was going away. The the Israelites could not see the purpose or the fulfillment of the Old Testament. All they saw were these forms that they were supposed to go through, these ceremonies and all these laws, but they couldn't see the purpose for them. And the purpose was to show Jesus Christ, but they couldn't see it because there was a veil. And the veil that was put over Moses' face was symbolic of the veil that was over all of their hearts. That their minds were blinded. That's a passive voice verb construction. God blinded their minds so that they couldn't see Jesus Christ, nor the end, the purpose of that old covenant, was to point us to Christ. For until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. As soon as you see Jesus Christ clearly, off goes the veil. It's like, here comes the bride. I can see your face now. You can see Jesus Christ clearly when the veil comes off. The Old Testament all of a sudden makes sense because you see all that sacrificial system pointing toward Jesus Christ. Which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. They hear Moses, they want to go out and try to keep commandments in order to win favor with God. They could not see Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Every Israelite 
that did humble himself before the Lord and turned to the Lord, that veil was taken away. Paul would say in another place, Hath God forsaken the people which he foreknew? God forbid. No, he hadn't forsaken them. Was Paul a Jew? He said, I also am an Israelite. Did he believe in Christ? Did he see the fulfillment of the Old Testament? So in general, the veil stayed over the heart of Israel. But anyone that God converted, by the power of his spirit, the veil came off, and they were able to see clearly, and there was a large number of Jews that did believe and did follow the gospel. But as a nation, they were blinded. But whenever they would turn to the Lord, they would be converted, and the veil would come off, and God is able and was able to graft them in whenever they would turn to Him. And believe me, they couldn't turn to Him unless He turned them first. But we come to the last two verses, which shows a transformation. And here's an explanation for what we've been reading all the way through it. It says in the first part of verse 17, Now the Lord is that Spirit. Wherever we've read the word Spirit, who are we talking about? The Lord Jesus Christ. If you're confused to call the Lord Jesus Christ the Spirit, or to call the Spirit the Lord Jesus Christ, I would remind you that we do believe in one God. In Galatians chapter 4, we're told that God sends forth the Spirit of His... What? Son into your hearts. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of His Son. The Holy Spirit testifies of Jesus Christ. They are one. They are one. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and the Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the way the word Lord is used in the New Testament. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And that liberty is being delivered from the constraints of Moses' system and that veil. Where where the Spirit of the Lord, Jesus Christ, is, there is liberty. No longer does Moses have a veil over his face. No longer do we have a veil over our hearts. We are, liber- we are liberated from that bondage to see things clearly. Amen. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There is liberty from the condemnation that was mentioned. There is liberty from death that was mentioned. And there's liberty from going through the motions of a religion all your life without knowing anything and then dying. Indignant justice stood in view to Sinai's fiery mount I flew, but justice cried with frowning face, This mountain is no hiding place. Can you imagine this morning assembling at the tabernacle and bringing with your children some animals to have their throats cut and their blood spilt and the stinking mess that occurred at that tabernacle every single day and you would go home and you would do it again the next month and the next year and it would never put away your sins. And you never saw beyond it. The veil was on their hearts. And even after Jesus Christ came, men would get up in the synagogue, open up the Old Testament scriptures, read them, and the Jews still did not understand. Still did not We've been liberated from that. We are most blessed to be under the New Testament. And it is more glorious than the Old. It is so much more glorious than the Old Testament that really the Old Testament doesn't even have any. Because that's how Jesus Christ exceeds Moses. And that's how the gospel exceeds the old covenant. But we all, not only ministers, but all saints, Jews and Gentiles, ministers and saints, we all, with open face, 
I want you to understand this. Open face, no veil. It's clear. Open face. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass, a burnished piece of metal that gave a very accurate and bright image. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord. We see the glory of the Lord plainly, clearly. Moses comes down from that glorious mountain. God couldn't even meet with the people. Moses came down. Moses went up. Moses spent 40 days with God. Moses came back down. His face was shining so much with the glory of the Lord, he had to put a veil over his face so the people could look at him. He was so bright. He was shining like an angel. But we have an open face, and we can behold the glory of the Lord plainly, face to face, now, in the gospel. Beholding the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. That verse is teaching that there ought to be, in the life of every true child of God, a transformation process that is taking place by which we are conformed to the image of the glory of God, and it's done by the Spirit of the Lord. And it's helped along or ministered by his preachers. That's a commentary on 2 Corinthians 3. Now here's my lesson for you, brethren, from this chapter. And there's, there's a lesson, and then there's an application. The lesson is this. Are we epistles of Jesus Christ? Is this church a living epistle? I want you to look at verses 2 and 3. Ye, that is a plural pronoun describing the Corinthians at the Corinthian church. Ye are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read of all men. Paul saw it, Paul understood it, and Paul took great pleasure in what he had seen happen in the city of Corinth. Remember, when he was in the city of Corinth, he had just got there. He's so intense with... Aquila and Priscilla, and the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, I have much people in this city. Don't you worry about anything because I'm going to be with thee because I have much people in this city. Corinth was like San Francisco. You go read about ancient Corinth. It was given over to orgies and the grossest licentiousness and lasciviousness that a city could have. There was an expression in the world at that time when you were wanting to describe a very wicked person, you would say, he's acting like a Corinthian. It was our Las Vegas or San Francisco or some city like that. And for for the Apostle Paul to go into a city like that and to leave a year and a half later and to have a large church established there, and to have some of the, we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that some of them had been sodomites. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, abusers of themselves with mankind, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Yes. There was a church there. A church meeting like this, singing hymns of worship to God, living holy lives. Remember, he wrote 
cleanse yourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit to that church in the middle of Corinth because they were an epistle that God had done a work there. Brethren, are we an epistle of Jesus Christ? Are we a written letter documenting that there's been a work of God here? Are you individually a letter of certification that there is a work of the Spirit of God in process? Or do you look like everyone else? Lord, help us. My lesson for you is the work of the Spirit of God in regenerating us and then the work of the ministry in working to convert us should result in living epistles. We should be walking epistles of the Lord Jesus Christ. We should show the work of the Spirit of God in our lives by the way we think, speak, and live. Look at verse 3. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us. Manifestly declared means it is obvious to anybody that wants to see it. It's obvious that God has used us in helping along your conversion because you are showing such a work of grace in the middle of the city of Corinth. And this epistle that they were was not written with ink. It wasn't Paul writing a letter. It was written by the Spirit of the living God, not on tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. And brethren, if we are God's children this morning, if we are born again, we have had written in the fleshy tables of our heart by the Spirit of the living God His commandments, His Word, and a love for Him. And that ought to be brought forth by the ministry so that this church is a living epistle of Jesus Christ. We live in a wicked world. Are we living epistles of Jesus Christ? What I want to say to you today, and what I want you to take home out of this 2 Corinthians 3, is to ask yourself, am I a living epistle? Do I think like Jesus thought? Do I speak like Jesus spoke? Do I act like Jesus acted? Do I do the things that Jesus did? And that is not measuring ourselves by the Catholic image of Jesus Christ. That is measuring ourselves by the Word of God that tells us about Jesus Christ. And the Spirit of God that confirms that lesson to us. We are not trying to measure ourselves by that effeminate, long-haired hippie that most people think is Jesus. We want to measure ourselves by the holy, righteously indignant, virtuous, gracious, gentle, Savior that the New Testament describes to us. We can, every moment of our lives, in our thoughts, say, would Jesus Christ be thinking that? We can, every time we open our mouths, say, this is going to be a difficult conversation that's coming up because I'm pretty irritated right now. But is that irritation justified? And can can I handle this in a way, just the way that Jesus Christ would have spoken? What I do today, I want to do in the way that Jesus Christ would do if he had my job. That's how we ought to live. That's the lesson I want to give you. Can we be like Jesus Christ? You know there's a bracelet, there's t-shirts that they're wearing today, WWJD. What would Jesus do? I'm not talking about wearing bracelets. 
It's not a sin to wear a bracelet. Just remember, if you wear a bracelet and you don't live up to it, all you're doing is following a fad that's part of having a form of godliness but denying the authority thereof. The people that wear that little bracelet don't even know anything about Jesus Christ. They don't know what he was really like. They've got an image in their minds. Most of them think that if Jesus Christ came back, he'd be a long-haired, punk, Christian rocker. Because that's where you see most of those bracelets. It's a contemporary Christianity movement. It's a fad. It's part of the form without the authority. And what I'm going after is the authority. What Jesus Christ requires of us, let's do it. Let's be living epistles of Jesus Christ so that everyone that knows us sees Jesus Christ. Now, we don't care what the world thinks very much. But if there are other saints, we want them to see us and recognize in us Jesus Christ living. And we want to live such lives that we cannot be found to be full of offense. I was, I was called this week by someone who had an old colleague that they had worked with years ago call them recently and say, I need to meet with you as soon as possible. This, this believer had worked with another believer years ago and got a call this week saying, I need to meet with you as soon as possible. Well, Now, the believer that I happen to know that called me didn't know what was going to come from the conversation at all. But when he got together with them, this believer said, I am disgusted with my church. I'm unhappy with it. They're doing things that I can no longer condone. I want to hear some preaching on repentance and holiness because I believe that's where the emphasis ought to be. And why did he call the believer that I know? Because he had seen in that believer and heard from that believer that kind of an emphasis. And brethren, that ought to be true of us because we ought to be living epistles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm not going to be that long this morning. I'm not going to be as long as I was last Sunday. Just stay with me. I've given you an explanation of 2 Corinthians 3. I hope you're able to read through the 18 verses and have a pretty good idea of what it's teaching. But now I want to give you a lesson from it for you personally. Are you thinking and speaking and living like Jesus Christ? Are we living epistles of our gospel? Are we living documents of certification that that man is one of Jesus Christ's disciples? That's how we ought to be living. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, and I love this passage. And we're going to sing a song to close this service this morning about walking in the footsteps of Jesus. And I want you to see it from 1 Peter 2.21. For even, 1 Peter 2.21, For even hereunto were ye called. This is what God called us to do. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow His steps. We should follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ and do what He did. Now, I happen to like the location of this verse. And I hope I like it because the Spirit is in me and the Spirit wrote it. And I want you to like it because I trust the Spirit is in you and the Spirit wrote it. Do you know where this verse falls, brethren? It doesn't fall in the middle of, a, of an explanation about adultery or fornication or sex sins. It doesn't fall in the middle of an explanation about alcohol, drunkenness, or gluttony. 
It falls in the middle of putting up with the authority relationships we have in life when they irritate us and mistreat us. In verses 12 through 18, we have civil authority listed. Verses 12 through 18. The bottom line is found in verse 13. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. We obey our government and all of its rules, even though we may think some of them are ridiculous, for the Lord's sake. Because God made government, the higher powers were ordained by Him, and the men that happened to be in them were put there by God's providence also. And so we believe, and we obey, and we submit, and we speak respectfully about them. That's verses 12 through 18. Jesus gave us an example that we should follow in His footsteps. When we have to pay taxes and that money goes for something ridiculous, we pay it anyway for the Lord's sake. Because we're obeying like Jesus did who said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Then verses 19, down through verse 17 with civil authority, then verses 18 through 20 are how you work on the job. And the point of verses 18 through 20 is working for an obnoxious boss called a froward master. When the Bible uses the word froward, not forward, froward, F-R-O, froward, not forward, froward, it means obnoxious. When you're working for someone that's obnoxious, that's an opportunity for you to serve the Lord. If you're working for a boss that's good and gentle, you don't have an opportunity to serve the Lord very well. Because it's, it's when you don't want to obey. It's when you don't want to do what he's asking. It's when you see the inconsistency in what he does and says. It's when you see him making foolish decisions that are costing the business. It's when he asks you to stay and work overtime when you had plans that night. That is an opportunity to walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Amen. Because that 21st verse said, Christ also suffered for us. When he walked to the cross on Calvary, did he deserve to go there? No. No. He was taken there in the purest, most innocent victim ever in this world. And that is how we should conduct ourselves. There is no perfect boss. Every boss is going to be obnoxious from time to time, some more than others. But that gives us an opportunity to do something for the Lord's sake. Because look what it says in the middle of verse 19. This is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. You know what that verse says? When your boss comes and does something wrong to you, what should you do about it? You should endure it. You should endure it and take it. Why should you endure it and take it? For conscience Toward God, because you have a conscience that is always thinking about there's a God in heaven. God made the authority of masters. God made that particular master I have. And God arranged the circumstances for him to be in a bad mood today. For conscience toward God. Some of you women are saying, well, I don't work on a job like that. So does it apply to me? (laughs) The first six verses of chapter 3 are describing wives submitting to their husbands. 
Then the husbands will say, good, I was hoping you'd get on the women. Then verse 7 of chapter 3 is, likewise ye husbands. The relationships of life that cause us irritation. In the middle of those verses, uh, describing the relationships of life and the irritation they cause us, we have the example of Jesus Christ suffering for us, and we are to walk in his footsteps. Can we be living epistles? Can we treat our spouses the way that Jesus Christ would if he was married to our spouse? Can we work for our masters as if Jesus Christ was working? Jesus Christ would not fight back. He would never answer again. He would suffer. He would take whatever wrong was done to him. And he would keep right on working as hard as he could. Because he would have a conscience toward God. Jesus always had a conscience toward God. He always did those things that pleased his father. Can we be like that? Can we snap that shoulder harness on and do it with a smile because we have a conscience toward God? Can we drive the speed limit? Can we sign our names at the bottom of our tax returns? Can we take a national ID card that may come along because of this terrorist activity and do it cheerfully? Can we be living epistles of Jesus Christ? He left us an example that ye should follow his steps. We're going to sing footsteps of Jesus. He left us an example, and he stuck the example right in the middle of our relationship. That's the hardest thing in the world. I was speaking to one of my children this day. Recently, I had an occasion to ask one of them to do something. And immediately, in one second of time, I saw the look come over the face of rebellion of not wanting to do it. They went and did it. And so I got to talk to that child about that that look in their face. And I know all about that look. (laughs) You think I'd... (sighs) And my father's sitting right here in this assembly. And I was talking to that child about what happens. When I ask the child to do something, I said, where do you think that change in your face and the change in the feelings inside of you came from? Was it from the Lord, or was it from the devil in your flesh? You know, it was the devil in his flesh. Arrive. Do all, do, am I the only one? Do all of you know what I'm talking about? You're, you're asked to do something that you don't want to do. How long does it take for the anger to well up inside and the rebellion to be there? How long? One second! Does that tell you anything about the word of God being true? That the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked? How in one second can we get so irritated, usually about the smallest of things? It's our wicked sin nature. But brethren, can we, can we commit together in your hearts today? Let's be like the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he was... When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. There is a judge that will protect and take care of you. There is a master in heaven that takes care of all employees. There is a husband in heaven that takes care of all wives. There is a father in heaven that takes care of all children. Submit to the forward husband or master or government or parent. The Lord will take care of you. Amen. And let's be like the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to Matthew 5. Matthew 5. 
There are so many verses. Matthew 5. Hurry, or I'll have to blame the length on you. Matthew 5, 43. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Matthew 5, 44. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. How do we walk in the footsteps of Jesus and are a living epistle of Jesus Christ? We love our enemies. It works. Pray for your enemies. If you ever feel some, some rebellion or some hatred or some resentment or some envy or malice in your hearts toward someone, there's a cure for it. Try Matthew 5.44. I've tried this on a few guinea pigs in the congregation. That's another word for saints who called and admitted they were having a problem. And so I got to use Matthew 5.44 with them, and it works. Because it's what Jesus would do. And you can be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Amen. Pray for a blessing on someone that you can't stand. Pray for a blessing on someone that's hurt you, hasn't kept their word to you. It works. It's the way that Jesus Christ would do it. Oh, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. I'll have accomplished my purpose if you leave this sermon wanting to think, speak, and act like the Lord Jesus Christ and wanting to get into His Word to find out how Jesus Christ thought, spoke, and acted so that you can do it. I'll have accomplished my purpose. So it doesn't take four hours of me mentioning 40 verses. I hope that I've said enough things already to, to move you in that direction. My tendency is to want to kick... Let's not use any illustrations that, re, that involve dead horses or dogs. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, what mind is there? It's a mind of humility, of wanting to think more highly of others than yourself. Because it says in verse 3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. We should never be doing anything in order to get attention. Never. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. That's the mind of Jesus Christ. Look at Philippians 5.2. Ephesians 5.2. I'm sorry. Ephesians 5.2. Ephesians 5.2. And walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us. Jesus Christ loved us, and He gave Himself an offering and a sacrifice to God for us. Are we willing to lay down our lives as a sacrifice for our brethren? 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. The references I'm going to are simply verses to remind you that this is taught in the New Testament. We should look like Jesus Christ. We should be living epistles. Otherwise, our religion's a sham. If we're not an epistle of Jesus Christ, if we look like everyone else, if we sound like everyone else, and that isn't measuring ourselves by their ideas of a Christian. It's measuring ourselves by God's measurement of a Christian. And that measurement the full stature of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the goal. The full stature of Jesus Christ as taught to us in His Word. 1 John 2, 6. He that saith, he abideth in him, 
ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. If you're going to say that you abide in Jesus Christ, that you're one of his, that you're close to Christ, there's a way to prove it, and there's something you ought to be doing. Walking the same way that Jesus did. And walking is just a word to describe living our daily lives just the way Jesus would live them if he was a student going to USCS in some horrible classes. Every one of us has a, has a life to live, a walk to make every day, and we want to do it the way Jesus Christ would do it. Living epistles, written first of all by the Spirit of the living God in our hearts. And then, by preaching like this morning, and what I'm trying to do is be a minister from God to you to bring that out into a whole congregation of living epistles. The way that you relate at home with your wife or husband, the way that you relate to your children, your boss, your neighbors, your government, your brethren in the church, all of those relationships, everything that we do, as if we were the Lord Jesus Christ. We read in, ver- in various places, Paul said, I labor like I'm in birth for you Galatians, that Jesus Christ might be formed in you. Paul said, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's like clothes almost, but to put on the Lord Jesus Christ so that you look and appear as Jesus Christ by putting on his perspective on life, by putting on his spirit, by putting on his actions, his speech. Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. That was the lesson. The lesson is, are we living epistles of Jesus Christ? Are we walking in His steps? When, when we're thinking, when you're by yourself and you're, at, you're driving, or you're sitting and you're, at, you're thinking, you can actually examine yourself Am I thinking the way Jesus Christ would be thinking? When you're speaking, am I handling this situation and are the words that are coming out of my mouth not the world's idea of Jesus, the Word of God's measurement of Jesus? Is the way I'm handling this situation the way Jesus Christ would handle it? Am I living the way that Jesus Christ would? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that first that lesson was in verses 2 and 3. The Spirit of the living God has written in the fleshy tables of our heart, and it is to come forth by the ministry of God's Word to us. If you have His commandments written in your heart, and since I'm giving them to you verbally, there ought to be some agreement somewhere in your mind, because your heart and your ears ought to be finding agreement between what I'm saying and what Jesus Christ by His Spirit put there. And so you ought to be in your heart resolving, yes, I want to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ than anyone else in this assembly because I want to love Him more and be committed to go that far. The application is in verse 18. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Do you know what the purpose for you being left here is? And do you know why you've been given the Spirit of God? For you to be changed into the image of God from glory to glory. In in a process of a gradual transformation of your life, the first 
the first change in your life was not gradual at all. It was the Holy Spirit of God giving you a new heart. But bringing forth that new heart from glory to glory, even to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's done by the Spirit of God. I cannot do it. All I can do is preach that it ought to be done, and you ought to be seeking the Spirit to do it, and you ought to be applying yourselves as diligently as you can. And if you think that sounds confusing, or you don't know where to draw the line between God's part and your part, just trust it to the Apostle Paul and labor more diligently than they all. Remember he said, I am what I am by the grace of God. But I labored more abundantly than they all. So there was Paul's part, and it was God working with him. Because he said, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. He's already given us his grace. Let's use his grace to be more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us, he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it. He'll do his part. He is going to perform the conforming of your life to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. But you can squander some of the grace of God by not using it. And I've preached sermons on growing in grace. And so what you need to take away from this morning's service is to take away an intent in your heart to humble yourself before God and to confess every sin that he has shown you and to ask him to show you the rest and to help conform you to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And then to slow down enough that in your thoughts and in your speech and in your actions, you do them in the way that Jesus Christ would have them done. And that you you get into this word. The Bible says as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. Grow from glory to glory until you have the image of Jesus Christ and you are a walking, living epistle of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the grace of God in your life. The goal is a perfect man. He gave some apostles and some prophets, some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints. Paul said in Colossians 1.28, whom we preach teaching every man and warning every man that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. But grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 3.18 My desire for this church and for me is not that we get bigger necessarily. That's that's in the Lord's hands. It's that we get better. That we move toward His image from glory to glory improving in the glory that's reflected in us of the glory of God because we're more and more like living epistles. Every one of you, right down to our children, you can be a picture of Jesus Christ in your life. Are you a living epistle? Or are you a book that looks like the rest of the books in this world? You know, our church, we have many members and many saints. We could be a book with many chapters, many epistles in it of a church where everyone is like the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time we open the Word of God, every time you do it in private, every passage you see about how to speak, how to think, how to live, remember, they're descriptions of how Jesus Christ thought, spoke, and lived, and let's take them to ourselves and live and speak and think that way. Let us be living epistles, proving the work of God in our spirits and the proof of the ministers that have labored 
on our behalf to bring forth those epistles to the glory of God. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.